Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Jay Livingston, CMO of Bark. Bark is the makers of BarkBox and was founded on the realization that there were very few companies injecting innovation and fun into a $69 billion pet industry. BarkBox now has 700,000 subscribers with a 95% retention rate and this year is said to cross the $230 million in revenue and is profitable. Jay joined Bark in July of 2017 and prior to that, he was Senior Vice President of Global Marketing at Bank of America. He's an active angel investor and advisor to companies across New York City, and he's a founding board member of Unite America. Now, I should say we recorded this episode in their headquarters in Chinatown, so if you hear a siren or two in the background, that's just the fun of New York City and recording your podcast. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jay Livingston. Well, Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, we've got a lot to talk about, but I thought we could start off with your background where you got started. Yeah, for sure. Uh, from Knoxville, Tennessee, originally, I was recruited out of undergrad into Nations Bank at the time in Charlotte, North Carolina. Was with Nations Bank, which later bought Bank of America and became Bank of America for about 20 years, working in sort of every functional area of marketing at the company at some point or another, marketing and strategy. And about two and a half years ago, 
I decided to leave Bank of America. I've been doing a lot of angel investing and advising in New York and was really enjoying spending time with a lot of the cool growth startups here. I was trying to just originally stay close to what was happening in marketing and close to the customer. And as I got into that space, was just really enjoying how it was hand-to-hand combat every day for these companies. So I took two years off and I traveled the world and restored an old muscle car and started a third political effort called United America with a bunch of people and a lot of projects. And when I started looking again, I was really looking for a company that sort of had four qualities that I was looking for. They were consumer facing, that made a physical product, and as opposed to say software or something like that, that also had a product that brought people joy and was headquartered in New York City. And you know, there aren't a lot of CMO jobs that come up like that every year. So as I started talking to a friend, Henrik Werdelin, who also runs an incubator called Prehype, where he's incubated a lot of companies that I've invested in a couple of those, he said, you know, we may be needing a, a CMO soon. So the more I looked at the company, the more interesting I thought it was. And here I am. Well, so you, you started out in Charlotte and then I'm assuming with Bank of America, you moved to New York at some point. I did. Right? Yeah. I moved to Chicago and then New York. So North Carolina, as you know, is near and dear to my heart. That's where I grow up. That's where I live. Yeah. So great place. I love Charlotte. I, I love, love my time there. And my accent's gone, but it might come back as we talk because you've got a little bit of one. So <laughs> if we had a couple of beers, it'd probably come back oh, yeah, more, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. For absolutely. sure. So now BarkBox has kind of rebranded as Bark, and you're doing a lot more now than just subscription box. Can you tell us about the transition the company's made and kind of where it's going? Yeah. So Bark's made up of really three businesses at the moment. Bark Box, which we're most known for the subscription business. We have close to 700,000 subscribers to the monthly box of toys and treats. It's very themed every month. And interestingly, we have about 94, 95% retention rate on the box. It's been a great product for us. We also have Bark Shop, which is where Customers come to buy all things dog, you know, toys, treats, and lots of other products. And then recently we moved into retail with Target. We have the in caps and in lines of the pet sections of all 1,800 Targets in the country. So this Bark Box, which was really the start of it, has really allowed us to gain customer trust and develop a community through our social platform that was built around that and expand into these other businesses. And we've got a couple other things launching this year that we can't really talk about yet. But as an entrepreneurial company, we're always looking at that next thing and the dog dog space. We're really all about making dogs happy. So whatever we can come up with that does that, we will launch quickly and give it a shot. So it's pretty early on. I think you guys started making your own products. And so pretty, I think almost all of them are, are now your own, right? Basically so, all, right. everything boxes we make. So you know, how has that model evolved over time? I mean, in terms of like where you get ideas and, and all that kind of thing. I think the founders learned early on, they realized that to make the box much more interesting for customers and sticky, frankly, it had to be more than just products. So they really wanted to bring a level of excitement. They put these themes around it that every month it's a totally dog focused theme that a lot of our customers say, you know, that's a big reason why they actually get the box. Our head of creative is a former Lego designer. We put a lot of emphasis on what's going in there to make it exciting experience for both the dog and the, the dog parent every month. So yeah, I think we, it's interesting too. We are now at the point where we've gone from 
about 150 different versions of the box based on the dog's size and, you know, allergies in that to about 1,500 versions. And we build those around play styles. So if you're a super chewer or a heavy chewer, (laughs) different size dog, and we'll soon be at 15,000 different versions of the box. So they really evolved it quickly, understanding that it had to be more than just this value play. It was really all about a magic surprise and delight kind of experience every month. Good. And you've got this huge growth plan, right? You're moving into retail big time. Yeah. Uh, you've got, I'm sure, other things coming down the pipe you can't talk about. But as you make this large expansion, what are the challenges ahead? Yeah, I mean, you catch fire often as, a, I think, a growth company with a certain product. And we, we caught fire with the subscription box. And retail is a great example of a place where Target had really been pursuing us to enliven their pet aisle and really bring some excitement there. They were losing some of their pet business to Petco and these other companies. And so we finally put together an approach to go into Target. And then I think we got there and realized, you know, we don't know a whole lot about retail. (laughs) And the lead times in retail are so long, right? So the learning you get on month one, you can't really employ until month five or six. And that's a little bit different for us. And so we quickly realized we had a lot of work to do to make what's special about Bark come through in the retail side of things. And so it's been a lot of work, you know, modifying everything from our packaging to our product mix to our pricing and even those end caps and what that looks like. And we're feeling a lot better about like where that is now. But, you know, that's a process that takes a little bit of work. When you're a very aggressive company, our approach here is like, let's take a swing early. And then sometimes we get into a situation where like, well, wow, now we've got to really <laughs> like fulfill on that. So I think that's not going to change. That's mm-hmm. kind of who we are. But that's something we're, we're always thinking about, like quickly refining what we're doing to fit the different spaces where right, we sell. Right. So it sounds like a symbiotic relationship with Target. They kind of needed something to freshen up their assortment mix. You guys came in really nice toys, I have to admit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) How do you manage those experiences across like online in the box, which is kind of a surprise, I'm assuming every month Mm -hmm. uh, for the owner and the dog, Yeah. to retail. And it's a a different feel, but I'm wondering how you think about architecting those experiences. Yeah, I mean, we talk all the time about creating an emotional relationship with our customers. And of course, the dogs are ultimately our customer. Like if we can make the dog happy, (laughs) the dog parents will get in line, you know, Mm -hmm. and and get behind us. We did a great job early on with that social community. We launched something called Bark Post, which was a media business around everything we were doing with dogs and a lot of original content and so forth. And I think we gained a lot of muscle memory there. Mm -hmm. The business you know, media businesses are really tough. So that didn't take off to the degree that we wanted, but yet we learned so much about building a community. I think we have, for instance, we have seven times the engagement of all the other pet brands in the US combined in our social world. Wow! So we really have the pulse of what's happening. We have the trust and we're constantly like engaging with consumers Mm -hmm. that way. Also, even though we were a digital first company, they were smart enough to build a great customer call center called Happy that we Mm -hmm. talk to our customers all the time across all of these businesses, across the subscription box, Bark Shop, and Target. And that really creates a strong relationship. We have great policies. If somebody has a problem with their toy or they want a replacement, like we're right there. Mm-hmm. Retail is definitely more challenging because if you're a digital first company, you sort of own that space. 
you own all these communications, these touch points, it's really hard to give up some of that control and some right. of that customer information. And frankly, we're still working on it. You have mm. to partner with the retailer. You know, Target's been pretty good about giving us information, yep. but we're also not P&G. Right. So we're not necessarily, we can't go in and Target and demand you know, certain things. Mm. And so that's something we've really had to learn our way into. There's no easy answer for that. Right. It's really just trying to pull every lever you can to stay in touch with how those products are working and what the customer is liking and not liking in your retail offering. Right. So as the growth has changed the company, I mean, we're here, I should have said this earlier, but we're here in your headquarters in Chinatown. Yeah. And it looks like you've taken over the entire building. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, how is this growth changing the company? How does the company need to evolve as you go forward? You know, and one of the things I was really brought in to help do is scale, right? So you've had all this success in these products. We're constantly testing new things. And what the kind of discipline that I talk about a lot from a marketing standpoint is, let's make sure we test things that we're passionate about and we're super excited about. If we like them, we think customers will like them. Mm -hmm. We also need to make sure they scale. They have the opportunity to scale if they're successful and that we measure those things. You know, a lot of growth companies, I think, put a lot out there. And then you ask what happened with each thing. And they say, well, I don't know, you know, because they don't have a culture of necessarily measurement and some of that discipline. Also building better data capabilities. So even though we're a digital first company, it wasn't our ethos early on to collect a lot of hard data. We were great about collecting soft data with those relationships. And so I think that's a thing we're really working on now is building our sort of data farm capabilities and being able to quickly access data and make decisions with the help of that data throughout the company. Mm. And that's a challenge. And the last thing I would say is also, you know, you think about the folks that come in that love working for a company of 10 to 15 people aren't always the same skill sets is a a company that now has over 400 people and may have a thousand in a year, year and a half. And so, you know, getting that right with the talent, the organization is kind of a big step in our evolution as well. Doing research on this and having a little bit of a conversation through email back and forth, your core demographic is going to change as you try to expand both in retail, which pulls you into many different places across the country. Yeah. How is it changing and how are you approaching that? It's not uncommon for a lot of direct-to-consumer companies. Yeah, I think our first audience, frankly, was a lot of affluent, urban, millennial women Mm -hmm. and that lived in these major cities and look a lot like we look at Bark. And then, you know, quickly as others discover your product, we get into the empty nester group Mm -hmm. that are crazy about their dogs and treat their dogs like children. We've started to attract more males. And then we've also moved out of a lot of those urban markets into, you know, more rural markets where Target may have given us a little bit of that, but also, you know, a lot of people in rural markets have dogs. One of the challenges for us is, and this is a challenge for every New York or Silicon Valley company, mm-hmm. is we're in such a bubble here. And I think being Southern, you can probably relate right. to this a little bit. Everybody in this building is basically, you know, they hate it when I say it, but a bit of a hipster, right? right. A Brooklyn hipster. And we constantly have to work. I've joked several times, like Trump supporters love their dogs too. Right. And we're all about the dogs. And how do we make sure we're not in such a bubble that we don't sort of understand what's important to a lot of the country that are our customers? And so that's something that we're always kind of working on and thinking right. about. Right. 
Yeah, you get a move towards purple, right? Yeah. A little, a little less blue, a little less, or a little more red. Yeah, for sure. Anything that scares you about that transition? I mean, it's for me, if I, if I were in your role, it would be a little frightening, to be honest. <laughs> we're not, I think it scares the founders that people like me, right. you know, when you bring in like a, a CMO who's worked at a bank, I think right. there was suspicion about me, like, is this guy going to really, it all take away from our authenticity, mm-hmm. take away from the magic of like what we're trying to do here. Hopefully, I've mostly convinced them that that's not going to happen. But yeah, I mean, that's something you've always got to be careful about as you really grow, especially as you grow quickly, not losing the core of what makes you special and not losing any of that connectivity. Like we're dog crazy people. We're continuing to hire dog crazy people. And we want to think that way as long as we're around, right? right? And so not getting away from that through chasing growth right. too much. You gotta stay true to who you are. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the unifying force in all of that is the dog, right? Yeah, it's the dog, it really is. It doesn't matter, you can't blame the parents, right? It's about satisfying the dog. It helps to be, I love being in a company that is mission-based. Yeah. And we're a mission-based company, mission-based marketing. That is always that sort of unifying North Star, if you will, for what's important to us. And, and our founders have done a great job sort of keeping us on. That's the advantage of also having your founders still involved in the company, right? Is they really keep us focused on that. Well, so I'm a pet. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The owner myself, I've got a, this is our second mutt that we're on. The first one passed away, but it's easy for me to think about your business. I mean, it's easy to be engaged in yeah. something like your business because you're for the dog, which is something core to our family. The content that you put is really engaging. Is there any magic that goes into how you keep your customers so engaged? Well, one of the things you just mentioned, which is like, it's a super traumatic experience, obviously, when a dog passes away, your right. dog passes away. And our happy team develops relationships with these customers that when they call and they have to stop their subscription or they're not buying products mm-hmm. because a dog passed away, you know, they'll write them a handwritten letter often oh, wow. talking about the dog by name and, you know, cause they have a relationship there and those letters and things mean a tremendous amount. And it's very authentic. I mm-hmm. mean, that we, I see our customer our happy team will cry all the time at those conversations. It's like they get really attached to what's happening there. So that's the way we want to continue to operate, though. We want to feel it Mm -hmm. that way and not ever just treat any dog or dog parent as a number. And so a lot of that is by the people you hire. Mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer. Like you got to hire the right people who have that ability to empathize and connect with customers Becoming a, this is why I see all the time in these growth companies, we're going to get too big to be able to every day meet a customer 
or talk to a customer. So we have to rely on data at scale to balance that out. One of the things that happened at Bank of America is we would often get, we got so big that we stopped spending time in banking centers, right? Mm -hmm. You stop meeting the customer, it really does become a number. The bank actually worked really hard. We worked really hard to not let that happen. That's something as we grow, we've got to pay a lot of attention to is make sure we continue to stay as uber close to our customers as possible and understanding you know, their and their dog's experiences. That's good. So one area I've heard from CMOs and CEOs that I've interviewed is usually from big companies, is they want to think or act small. Mm-hmm. And I think what they mean by that is they want to act like a bark box mm-hmm. or a Warby Parker or anybody else in that category. Yeah. Is there any advice, having made that transition yourself on a personal level, any advice on how to bring that thinking into a big company, big corporation? You know, I've learned a ton here about the founders, through our founders. When I got here, there's been nothing that surprised me from a skill set standpoint. There has not been one marketing challenge that I've thought, man, I don't know how to deal with that. But you know, I was a planner, right? And Bank of America was an aircraft carrier that it took 3,000 people three weeks to get to move two inches right right, in one direction. And so I come in and I sort of have these plans for things. And early on, our founders were like, listen, just do it. Push, push, push. If it doesn't work, set it to the side and push again. You hear all this talk about fail fast and move through these things, but we're really living that. And I think it makes all of us nervous to not think like entrepreneurs. I had sort of an entrepreneurial bent. That was kind of my thing at Bank of America anyway. So that's come naturally, but they really help bring that out to think about every day, you know, don't overthink these things. Like let's get them out there and then we'll optimize as we go. And that's been great for me. And once you get into it, it's very invigorating, right? right? It's a lot more fun, but there's an art to it. And you got to be careful, especially as the stakes get higher, as we get bigger. Right. So we're constantly like feeling out that balance. And there's, there's no super easy answer to that. It's something that every company has to wrestle with. How much did your time off that transition period, right? Between Bank of America and working with startups, doing some investing. What did you learn there that do you think prepared you for this role? I could not have done this job nor would I have been hired for it if I had not been doing that angel investing and spent time with a lot of those growth companies in New York. I had a total familiarity with how they worked that I would just not would have had in my office at Bank of America. And I also wouldn't have had the credibility to talk to founders in this space about why my you know skill set would work somewhere like this. That was hugely valuable. I remember I got some advice early on from a VC in town, a well-known VC in town. And I told him I had this theory for how I was doing my angel investing. And I was looking for maybe non-sexy companies that had good cash flows, et cetera. And he just looked at me and said, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> he said, you need to set aside a hunk of money and just assume you'll lose it because you probably will. He said, but invest in the most interesting smartest people you can find in the companies that you're passionate about and then you think are really just fun. He goes, if you do that, the impact that will have on your experiences, your skill set, your network, and your brand really as a person will be way beyond that money that you probably will lose in investing in all those startups. And I remember walking out of there thinking, huh, I wonder if he's right. And that did definitely shift a little bit of my thinking on that. And that was really smart. He was absolutely right. It's kind of given me a lot of opportunities to get involved in things like BarkBox that I just wouldn't have. So plus you learn from other folks that are going from that going through that same space. The one thing I didn't bring because I'd been at such a big company is 
you know, a lot of these CMOs are folks that will move around from growth company to growth company. They have a team of people that they'll bring into each one because they know people that worked in that space. They know agencies. They know vendors that work mm-hmm. in that space. I really don't. I know right. the biggest agencies in the world. Right. <laughs> and I know very senior level marketers and so forth. But that was a place where I wasn't able to instantly like put in my team. So that's been something that I've had to adjust to a little bit and just compensate for really getting to know that, that world a little bit better from a vendor standpoint. Well, good. Well, thank you for that. I love talking about getting another person behind who I'm interviewing. Yeah. And I love this question. Sometimes people take it in very different directions, but yeah. it's a notion of, was there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you've become? Well, of course. I mean, it's, it's such a great <laughs> question. There are so many experiences. I'll tell you one experience. I mean, a very personal experience. You know, I went to a private high school mm-hmm. in Knoxville. I was a uh, son of a teacher there. And sort of had one foot in a couple of worlds. It was sort of an affluent high school, but also as a teacher's kid, there was an element of, there was a socioeconomic sort of chain there at the school that I did not love my place on it. (laughs) And I think that drove me quite a bit to say, you know, I'm not going to be in the position down the road where I really don't control my destiny is a stupid word in that sense, but my sort of economic position Mm -hmm. and from a status standpoint, I think that feeling was set early on that set a lot of drive in me. It may have been security to some degree too, you know, that was sort of instilled at that point. I also think I realized early on in college that I had a lot of curiosity about what makes groups of people do the things they want to do. And so that's sort of sociology. It's a little bit psychology. It's marketing. Mm-hmm. It's communications. It always just fascinated me. I wanted to know why, why, why? What motivates people all the time? Right. Yeah. That really makes for a great marketer yeah. that down the road, if you constantly have that curiosity and you're willing to, you know, I call it sometimes learn to unlearn. I read a great article about Barry Diller in the uh, New York Times Magazine a couple weeks ago, where he says each business he moves into, he has to learn to unlearn, you know, everything he knew before. So I think about that all the time as you move around through different businesses, what's holding you back that way. So I think curiosity and that willing to willingness to like throw aside what you've learned for sort of a new frontier has helped me a lot. Interesting. What drives you? What fuels you every day? Boy, it's a hard question when you really think about what drives the people to be as especially in New York City. One reason I love being in New York, I kind of wish I'd lived here earlier, is you're surrounded with people all who are kind of at the tops of their fields, right? In a lot of different fields, which there aren't a lot of places in the country where it's not an industry town. And so I think the people I'm around have all had a lot of success and it kind of pushes you and drives you to be successful. You have to almost watch that because that can get a little, that can start to dominate your life, which is something I, I think about a lot. I'm also, you know, I stayed at one company for 20 years. I'm like a loyal person and I'm an operator. I don't want to consult. I don't want to like jump around to things. I want to get in and build and grow. Why? (laughs) We'd need a longer podcast, I think, to really dive into that. (laughs) But I know I am super fueled and excited about the idea of just growing something, continue to grow. And And I love that at Nations Bank and Bank of America as well. So marketers tend to be students of the craft. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times there's brands that you follow, you track. Are there any you, you think other people should be taking notice of either brands, companies or causes? Two quick thoughts there. I love what companies like Tesla do where they're not conventionally advertising, but like attaching that car onto their rocket ship is just the coolest thing. I mean, they get so much authentic PR and exposure from that. I love anything that is 
thinking about is something that a normal company is doing that you put a twist on it that just gets people's attention. Gets people's attention that didn't expect to be interested. So I love watching that. It was fascinating to me. Like years ago, I remember we were pitching sort of a, a commercial at Bank of America that had humor in it. And I remember an executive said, well, humor will never work in financial services. It's just people are serious about insurance and banking and so forth. Right. So I think Geico came out about a year later with this lizard, right? Yeah. And then the caveman. <laughs> right. And nobody had ever really heard of Geico. Right. And soon you had Aflac come out. Like You can imagine going to the Aflac board and saying, okay, I've got this idea. This duck is going to come walking out of a out of a pod and just say Aflac. Right. And that's going to make us almost single-handedly the most popular like corporate insurance company right. in the country. Right. Same with Geico. And it forced folks like Allstate mm-hmm. and State Farm who dominated that space. They had to change their entire business, their entire approach to marketing. Progressive obviously come out with flow and all those things. Nobody ever heard of progressive before. So that's an example of where creative marketing can mm-hmm. take what's considered a staid business and yep. totally upend it. So I love any example of that when people say, yeah. oh, you know, marketing's a little, what can marketing really do for us? Right. Yeah, it can do a lot across a lot of businesses. Well, I don't, I, you mentioned Tesla and the, the rocket with the car. I immediately thought of Bank of America putting an ATM on the next rocket, you know, the first ATM in space. Man, but if they'd let us. Can you imagine trying to sell that through? Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. But that extra commercial recently that they did with the guy riding sort of the scenes from he and his girlfriend's experiences oh, yeah. on the gum packets, yes, right? Yeah. It's like you think about how do you make gum emotional and relevant? And that was a place where I think that, I mean, I cried a little at the yeah. end of that commercial, right? It's a gum commercial. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anytime you can create that emotional connection, you're doing something right. Yeah, I agree. Last question for you. What do you think the future of marketing is going to look like? It's going to continue to change. I've always thought it was interesting where marketers tend to, after a few years, put themselves in like, I'm in this industry, or I'm in this one space, you know, that I focus on. And from my perspective, you know, just always going where the eyeballs are. And it's cliche now, but radio beat up on print, but print didn't go away. Television beat up on radio. They were all convinced they were going out of business. We've still got radio. Of course, most recently, it's these social networks and the internet, and there'll be new things down the road. It's always changing and evolving. We just want to always be thinking about like, how do we... But every channel requires great storytelling. So how do we tell great stories that work across all the channels at all times. We're actually having to learn to do traditional media at Bark because we've been a digital first company. So we had organic social and paid social, very targeted marketing. Now we've got to learn a little bit how to do traditional and probably some more awareness brand marketing. And so I just think the we don't know where the future is going, but we know that it'll be different. And so that's how I think about, I'm ready for whatever that is. <laughs> we'll figure out a way to, to get people and their dogs interested in what we do and whatever it is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at Atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley. 
Social media support by Megan Woods. Art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.